Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the magnificent Roxburgh Hotel and to the 13th National Economic uh, Forum. My name is Fergus Ewing, and I'm the Minister for Energy, Enterprise and Tourism. Three jobs, one salary, you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to convene the 13th National Economic Forum. Um, looking around, I see in the audience some regular customers, some sort of retreads, if I could use that word. Uh, <laughs> uh, and also many new faces. In fact, 43% uh, I'm told of the audience uh, have not attended a National Economic Forum before. Uh, and most of you who are here are here because you, you want to make a contribution to the development of the work that we're doing together in Scotland as Team Scotland. And that is of enormous importance to us. And many of the contributions from previous NEFs and business in the chamber have led us to develop, shape, and advance our policy and our work in Scotland. So this is very much about us listening to you this morning, uh, especially in the, the workshop sessions which will take place later. You should have all access to the Wi-Fi facilities in the hotel today, so if you want to tweet, please use the hashtag, hashtag ScottGovNEF, and you'll find this up on the screen at the bottom of each slide. Um, the turnout today, I think, demonstrates the, the strong interest in the work that we are doing together. And the forum brings together a government at uh, national and local level, as well as industry, academia, and the third sector. The theme today is realizing Scotland's economic potential through internationalization. And one of the ways that we've demonstrated our commitment to this is by setting a very ambitious goal of increasing exports by 50% by 2017. I should also say that to those of you who haven't engaged with us already, that the Scottish Government Ministers are very much open to meet all of you. Our door is open, our office is open to meet you. After all, you pay for us, you pay for the door, and you pay for the office. So uh, we are here to work with you and engage with you as appropriate, uh, as are our enterprise network, who are well represented here today, uh, especially Dr. Lena Wilson and Anne McCall, respectively the chief executives of Scottish Enterprise and Highlands and Islands Enterprise. Um, now, shortly we will hear from our keynote business speaker, who was to be James Watt of Brewdog, James cannot be with us here today because of the very, very good excuse that his uh, wife, Joanna, has delivered their first daughter yesterday, Evie. So a round of applause for the latest Scottish citizen. Um, but we are extremely grateful that Martin Dickey, the co-founder of BrewDog, has stepped up to the plate and into the place of James uh, uh, and will be speaking later on today about the growth of, of BrewDog and the key challenges the company faced in exporting and their approach to accessing new markets. Uh, later in the morning, we will have four discussion groups, uh, each looking at various different aspects of internationalization and exports. We do follow Chatham House rules at the forum, so if you are tweeting please make all your tweets as discreet as we would like them to be. No extraneous references to dictators in any part of the world or anything like that. Uh, Goni no do that, as we, as we would say. Uh, but uh, seriously, it is Chatham House session today so that we can all get the maximum out of it. So, to start off the day, ladies and gentlemen, it's uh, my great pleasure to ask you to invite and welcome the First Minister of Scotland, to the stage, Alex Salmond. Uh, well, good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Fergus. Uh, I'd like to uh, start uh, the National Economic Forum today by reflecting on some of the, the very positive statistics which were published last week uh, in terms of the Scottish economy. Uh, labour market stats showed continued growth in employment. Uh, women's employment is at an all-time high in Scotland, and the uh, majority of that dramatic job growth has been full-time rather than part-time employment. 
Scotland continues to outperform the UK in terms of employment and activity rates and has the same unemployment rate. Uh, another report <clears throat> highlighted that tourism spending in Scotland has increased by 20% in 2013 and the Ernst & Young Business Attractiveness Survey, the annual survey, showed a rise of 8% in the number of inward investment projects coming to Scotland last year, reaching their highest level since 1997 and second only to London uh, across these islands. Now, one of the things <clears throat> that that flurry of statistics demonstrate is what's called the halo effect. Uh, the benefits of significant and positive international attention focused on Scotland uh, due to major events such as the Ryder Cup, the year homecoming and of course the Commonwealth Games. And then there's another event that people comment on from time to time. Now, I'm interested in this because it was actually the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer <coughs> told the BBC in the northeast of Scotland actually in November 2011, let me quote him exactly. He said, I think uncertainty is damaging investment in Scotland. There are major businesses around the world who are already asking me as Chancellor, tell us what's going on. We're worried about making an investment. Now, that was more than two and a half years ago. Now, we don't need a crystal ball to find out what happened to that particular forecast. We can look at the track record of the last two and a half years. We can read the book. Uh, and if someone can be so comprehensively, demonstrably, dramatically wrong... Of course, I should say that the Chancellor went on to say that he was working hard to dissuade anyone who was uncertain. He went on to say that he was working as Chancellor uh, to persuade them to uh, invest uh, in Scotland. But I think the point is that if somebody can be so dramatically wrong about the record over the last two and a half years, uh, then it's likely they'll be dramatically wrong uh, about the impact of the next period. Now, the attention of Scotland is going to grow significantly over the next few weeks. Uh, on Saturday, I was in Edinburgh uh, to see the launch of the Queen's Baton Relay when it arrived in Scotland. It's in the Scottish borders today. There are now just 35 days to go before the start of the, the Commonwealth Games. In addition to Commonwealth Games, we can look forward to the Edinburgh festivals, the, the Ryder Cup, and the hundreds of homecoming events uh, across the country. So this summer, when the eyes of the world are upon Scotland, it provides a unique opportunity for companies here to build their reputation on an international and world stage. And so this is the perfect moment uh, for the National Economic Forum uh, to discuss internationalisation. Now, Fergus, I, I thought you were very uh, generous to James Watt. I mean, it seems to me that the birth of your first child, Evie, to James and Jana is a very poor explanation indeed for, for, for not coming to the National Economic Forum. Right, I shall write to my constituents and make that point. <laughs> but, uh, of course, uh, we congratulate uh, uh, James and Joanna. Uh, on their wonderful news last night. Now, Brewdog, uh, where um, Martin is going to, to talk to us in a few minutes, began with two friends, you were friends, yeah? Selling beer uh, out of the back of your truck. Now, last year, it had exports of £18 million sterling. It now sells to 42 countries, runs a network of bars in cities such as Tokyo, Gothenburg and Sao Paulo uh, in Brazil. It gives me uh, enormous pleasure to know that if their teams have lost, any team has lost, distressed football supporters from around the world gathered in Brazil will be able to drown their sorrows with a beer brewed in Aberdeenshire. And it gives me even greater pleasure to know that Scotland in some form is represented uh, at, <laughs> this year's, at this year's World Cup. Uh, a couple of weeks back, uh, I went to the Coca-Cola plant uh, in East Kilbride, uh, where they produce the commemorative World Cup editions uh, for, the, uh, for the world to celebrate their 50th anniversary of manufacturing in East Kilbride. And I, I saw that commemorative bottle, uh, which is made there for international markets. Uh, I asked uh, the chief executive, John Brock, uh, why this was uh, being made in uh, East Kilbride. Uh, but the answer came from a, a gentleman called John McCafferty, who was uh, showing us round. Uh, and John was doing the walkthrough for, for Mr. Brock and myself. Uh, and the way that McCafferty put it was as follows. He said that Scotland as a nation, after much deliberation, had decided not to participate in the World Cup this year. <laughs> However, such was the generosity of our nature. We were producing the commemorative edition for the entire world from East Kilbride. Now, I want you all to remember these words from McCafferty. That is the explanation we must have and carry forward from this date forward. The ultimate of positive thinking. 
But Brewdog is part of a food and drink industry which is entering a golden age. Between 2007 and 2012, the sector achieved a 52% increase in exports. And today, Richard Lockhead, the Cabinet Secretary for Rural Affairs, launches the next phase of the Scottish Government's food and drink strategy. It shows that the industry itself is determined to build on these successes, aiming for a further 40% increase in exports by 2017. So there's little, there's no doubt that Scottish companies can and do prosper in international markets. But there are many, many ways in which we could do better. In particular, Scotland's exporting companies tend to be too concentrated, narrowly into certain sectors, both in terms of the number of companies who export and indeed that range of sectors that they come from. Only 13%, 13 13.13 of our small and medium-sized companies export internationally. In the Nordic countries, the corresponding figure would be around 30%. And the exports that we make are too narrowly focused in terms of countries we sell to. They're concentrated in traditional markets, while sales to Brazil, despite Brewdog's best efforts, Russia, India and China, account for just 5.5% of our total international exports. So closing the gap with other comparable countries and looking to new and expanding markets will be essential to meeting that target to increase exports by 50%, international exports by 50% by 2017. And of course, our enterprise agencies have a significant role to play. Uh, Scottish Enterprise and SDI, for example, have worked with Brewdog. Scottish Enterprise helped it with its equity for punks financing model. And I'm sure that Scottish Enterprise used its well-trodden experience on equity for punks uh, in terms of providing that advice. And Scottish Development International delivers the Smart Exporter Programme, which has helped over 4,000 companies understand and develop the skills and technical knowledge they need to export. It's also expanded its overseas network in recent years. It currently has 27 offices. A 28th is opening this week in Ghana to take advantage of the opportunities in the oil and gas sector. But although the enterprise agencies are hugely important and hugely successful, and everybody should understand among the top rated agencies in international terms by their peers, it needs action from all of us across the public sector, third sector, private sector. And the themes of this morning's discussion, as uh, groups uh, break to, to examine this, is about much more than marketing and promotion. It requires ambition, leadership, skills and innovation. So let's take uh, innovation as an example. I've been on a number of visits in the last week. Last Wednesday I was at the Oil & Gas UK's annual conference where I met several of Scotland's leading supply chain companies. Uh, supply chains, international sales in oil and gas reached £10 billion last year. On Friday, I, I visited Greenfold Systems in Dunfermline, which supply companies such as Alexander Dennis, uh, which sells hybrid fuel buses around the globe. On Monday, I opened uh, the new dock in Stromness in, in Orkney, which will help meet the needs of uh, vessels servicing uh, the world-leading marine renewables industry. Now, the thing that links all of these very different success stories, which is also part of the success with Brewdog, is innovation. It's something for which we are known for around the world. We have more universities in the world's top 200 per head of population than any other country on the planet. Over half of that research carried out in Scotland is rated as internationally excellent. But for too long, we've been less good at turning our research excellence into sustainable businesses or commercial ideas. And it's worth uh, thinking, I, you know, when I was a lad and, uh, and I stumbled across the fact that Scotland seemed to have invented everything, you know, from television to telephone, et cetera, et cetera, Tar McAdam, we actually invented the overdraft, incidentally, although we don't talk about that quite as much as some of the others. I kind of stumbled across this idea and wondered, why do we invent all these things? And of course, I, I realised eventually the reason we invented all these things is we invented universal education, which allowed more people to be educated so they were able then to invent things. Uh, but also, I realised that the bulk of these inventions became part or were invented as part of a commercial process. You know, when James Watt was staring at the kettle, he was probably already thinking of the commercial applications of an effective uh, steam transmission engine. Uh, so the fact that we have managed to keep and maintain our excellence in research and innovation, but somewhere over 
the 20th century lost much of the ability to turn that innovation into business and commercial success as we did in the 18th and 19th century, you know, is a matter for us to redress and sort. It's not an impossible thing to do, incidentally, because it's actually much more difficult to create the innovation than it is to create the commercial flow from the innovation. Uh, but nonetheless, it's something we have to face up to and sort. So that's why Scottish Enterprise is making support for innovation and research and development a key part of the support it offers to Scottish companies as they become international. Now, Justine Ewing, the Chief Executive of the Digital Health Institute, is facilitating the session on innovation at the forum today. The Digital Health Institute explores how to use new technologies to help us care for people in their homes rather than in hospitals. By doing so, it facilitates independent living. Importantly, it brings companies and universities together, helping to address the problem of commercialising our inventions, or the opportunity, we should say, of commercialising invention. It's one of four innovation centres the Scottish Government has opened. We plan to open four more over the next year. Industrialisation is the next thing I want to refer to. The reason I was in Dunfermline on Friday was to launch a report setting out how an independent Scotland could reindustrialise the country. Innovation is central to that approach. We aim to establish the Scottish Innovation Agency together with a business development bank. We plan to launch a huge export promotion campaign based on a network of 70, 90 overseas offices, as opposed to 28 we're about to have this week. In the long run, and this is really, really important, a 50% rise in exports would likely increase employment in Scotland by 100,000. So a 50% rise in exports, a 100,000 increase in employment. Crucially, those initiatives will be part of a coordinated national plan, which includes a commitment to gender equality, investment skills, improved access to finance, and a partnership approach to industrial relations, because each and every one of these things are interconnected. Friday's paper was about industrialisation, Boosting manufacturing will in itself be good for exports. Manufacturing currently makes up 12% of our economic output, but 59% of our exports. And as companies export, they become exposed to new ideas, new working practices, and they innovate more. That virtuous cycle develops. And any analysis of industrialisation or internationalisation forces us to reflect some of the other challenges and opportunities that Scotland faces. In 2011, our onshore productivity, that's excluding oil and gas, was 9% lower than Sweden, 12% lower than Denmark, 15% lower than Germany. Increasing and sustaining productivity growth, even if we did it by just 0.3 percentage points, could help close that gap and produce an additional 2.4 billion a year in tax receipts by 2030. Increasing our employment rate by 3.3 percentage points would move Scotland up to the level of the top five performing countries in the OECD and increase revenues by 1.3 billion a year. And increasing our population by 6.2%, that's in just over a decade, would sustain the better dependency ratio we have at the present moment. And that 6.2% is less than the projected growth for the UK as a whole. That would increase revenues by 1.5 billion a year by 2030. And collectively, as I pointed out, if we do that, not because something will be given or handed to us on a plate, but if we set ourselves a target on productivity, on balancing the population, the working age population with the total population, if we set ourselves a target on increasing employment that come from that, uh, then collectively that represents a substantial boost of five billion a year in tax revenues by 2030 over a period of time working together to build the economy to a new level of prosperity. Now, not everyone here agrees with the argument we need the powers of independence to address deep-seated challenges. I understand that fact, I respect it. But one of the great advantages of this extraordinary year for Scotland is we get the opportunity to focus on things uh, that really matter, how we can do better for this country, how we can improve our situation. Uh, I'll tell you what's really important. That is that this is an argument which can focus on what we do to improve our situation over a period of time. Not thinking that everything will be a complete and utter disaster, not thinking that everybody will be entering a land of milk and honey, not thinking we'll have free taps in an independent Scotland, whiskey, oil and water, but recognising 
that the way to prosperity is to address the challenges in the economy and work together to improve our circumstances. Now, boosting the exports uh, is one of the most important challenges we face. So it's time for deep thinking about that. And looking to the future, I want to return to the point I started with, the huge opportunities that we have over the coming weeks. The Commonwealth Games have already brought significant benefits to Scotland. £330 million worth of contracts have been awarded thus far. 82%, 82% of that value has gone to firms based in Scotland. That's more than £250 million, going to more than 400 companies across 23 different local authority areas. Now that, I submit, will create a lasting benefit for each of these 400 businesses. I'm struck by some of the comments that I've uh, received from individual companies who have successfully tendered for contracts for the Commonwealth Games. Uh, I won't read out some of the comments I've had from individual companies that haven't tendered successfully. <laughs> But it's worth reflecting on some of these, uh, these 400 companies. Balmoral Tanks from Aberdeen, who supply the water storage systems for the aquatic centre and the velodrome, said that the contract continues to cement a reputation in some of the highest profile developments in the world. Baron Ray from Glasgow said that the impact of saying you've been involved in events such as Glasgow 2014 cannot be overestimated. And that message has been clear from many, many of the successful companies who are part of the Games experience. But we're taking other steps to ensure the economic benefits of the Commonwealth Games last well beyond this year. After all, Commonwealth countries import around £1.3 trillion of goods and services. That figure will increase because the Commonwealth includes some of the fastest growing economies in the world. Yet Scotland exports to this £1.3 trillion demand block eh, less than £1.8 billion a, a year. That's less than 10% of our total exports to a, a group of countries who have an association with us and who have some of the fastest growing economies of the world in their number. So showcasing Scotland, Scotland's largest ever food and drink event for major buyers, will be held at Dunblane two days before the Games start. The next day on the 22nd July, a major business conference will begin at Glasgow University. It will bring together business and political leaders from across the Commonwealth. In addition to that, Glasgow City Hall's an old fruit market together with Innovo House nearby will be transformed into Scotland House for the duration of the Games. And Scotland House will be the hub for celebrating Scotland's cultural sporting success, which we absolutely expect, and of course the business potential, which we want to grow. I'm particularly pleased that, uh, about the old fruit market because seven years ago when we won the Games in Sri Lanka, that was the centre of the Glasgow celebrations as they waited <laughs> with bated breath for the successful uh, announcement which transpired. And I rather like the idea of the, the venue which was the focus for public celebration in the Games itself will be one of the venues for business growth which will be associated with the contacts made and the opportunities of the Games. Today we are announcing the programme of events for Scotland House. Every day we'll focus on a key growth sector for Scotland, for example, food and drink, energy, financial services, life sciences. The programme has been created to encourage long-term trade and investment. It's to ensure that businesses make the most of the great opportunities that the Games will bring. Now that Scotland House programme, together with the Commonwealth Games Business Conference and the Showcasing Scotland event, enables Scottish businesses to show their talent and creativity to the Commonwealth and to the world. I think it will create and help to sustain a lasting legacy for trade, investment and for jobs. Ladies and gentlemen, in conclusion, this summer it provides Scotland with a massive opportunity. For companies who export, it's an opportunity to expand. For those who don't, it's a good reason to consider making the move into overseas markets. For every one of us, it's a chance to, to build. It's a chance to benefit from Scotland's enhanced international reputation and that reputation to sustain it for creativity and for excellence. I had a word with a guy who does the index, Arholt, the academic who does the country reputation index a few months back. And Scotland rates as a, a, a nation, as a stateless nation, very high on that index in terms of reputation. But one point he makes in terms of the countries which are at the top of that international reputation index which has an enhanced effect on the goods and services they provide is that you should judge and they are judged on how useful they can claim to be to other countries. 
not how great or big or strong militarily or whether they have global domination, but how useful they are. And as we as individual companies or as our country present ourselves to that international marketplace, each and every company to be successful, this country to be successful, should present itself on how useful we are uh, to the economy, to the culture, to the interrelationships, to the rest of humanity. So for all of us, it's a chance to build and benefit from that growing international reputation. And by creating a more internationalised economy, we can also build a more balanced, more sustainable and more prosperous economy at home. That's a big ambition, a worthwhile ambition. I hope the discussions at today's forum will go a substantial way to helping us maximise that potential. I wish all of you all the best for an extremely productive morning. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much indeed, First Minister, for setting the scene on today's theme of internationalisation. I just uh, also mention that the Commonwealth Games uh, procurement is also providing uh, substantial work for a number of supported employment businesses, i.e. businesses where over 50% of the employees have a disability, and that's part of a drive to use our influence in the public and private sectors to ensure that people who are working and have a disability have the dignity and respect of a job as well and the Commonwealth Games is playing its part on that too. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the, the uh, second uh, main speaker of uh, this NEF uh, uh, is a, a young fellow who, with uh, his friend James Watt, uh, set up BrewDog just in 2007, seven years ago, from scratch in a small unit. Uh, what they have achieved, as the First Minister has briefly outlined, is surely nothing short of an exemplar to all young people uh, who have the desire to be entrepreneurs and to set up their own business in Scotland. Uh, and we are especially grateful that Martin Dickey has come along today at very short notice to, uh, uh, in the circumstances explained. So it's my great pleasure to ask Martin Dickey to address you, ladies and gentlemen, this morning. Martin. Hi, good morning. I'm uh, Martin Dickey, co-founder of BrewDog. For those of you at the back, I shaved my hair yesterday, so you can probably just think that it's James, so you'll be fine. <laughs> um, what, what we're going to do, we're going to watch a short video, and then I'll go through... Um, some facts. I had to write some of them down because I deal with more of the production side rather than the, the sales and marketing, so some of these things are new to me as well. <laughs> uh, I'd like to apologise as well for the fact I'm dressed in a pair of jeans and a shirt. Uh, at, the, at the back end of last year, I decided that I no longer needed any suits apart from a dinner suit, so I gave them all to charity, so this is the, this is the smartest I get. Um, so let, let's start with the video. We are Brewdog. 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 And this is our beer. Beer like it was. Beer like it should be. Beer like it will be. The craft beer revolution has saved me and thousands like me from the perils of lesser beer. And now, and now, and now we want to save others. Mass market mega corporations have destroyed the very essence of fear and forced an insipid, apathetic fallacy down our throats. Good men, blissful in their ignorance, soak it up like vermin. But that is about to change. And we, and we, and we are about to motherfucking change it. If you're an average Joe and want to drink average beer, go ahead. Define yourself with tasteless, whoring mediocrity. We choose a different path. To do things differently. And to make a difference. We love craft beer. We love craft beer. And our simple mission is to make other people as passionate about great craft beer as we are. At Brewdog, we believe. We believe. 
We believe in putting flavour back into people's beer glasses. We believe that now is the time. Now is the time. That beer stops tasting of nothing. And starts tasting of audacity. Authenticity. And a brave new world of possibilities. Taste the hops and live the dream. Because as a craft beer guardian, a pioneer, a scientist, a punk, a libertine, a brewer, we have sworn our allegiance. And there is no turning back. We are the change. And so are you. We are Brewdog. We are Brewdog. We are Brewdog. We are Brewdog. And this is the Fat Beard Evolution. Okay, so it's just a quick video so you can see a little bit about you know, what we're trying to do. Also, a, a few images of the brewery as well to kind of put things into context. Um, start at the start and we'll run through it quickly. Uh, back in 2007, James and myself decided that we couldn't find you know, the beer that we liked to drink. So the only way to remedy that was to actually make it ourselves. So two guys that were 24 um, with a dog didn't know any better we decided that we'd set up a brewery in, in Fraserburgh. So with a very small amount of savings, I think we had about £20,000 um, of, of savings and, and, and money from family, and then a bank loan of, a, of another £30,000, we managed to set the, the company up in, in an old industrial estate in, in the northeast of Scotland. And when you think about places to start a, a brewery, it's probably the worst place you could start a brewery. If you think about where the geographical um, market is, it's not in the northeast of Scotland. It's, you know, if it's the UK, it's down in, around Birmingham, uh, London. Uh, or, or if it's the rest of the world, you want to maybe be close to a, a hub or somewhere where you can actually distribute efficiently from. But as we are both from, from that area, it's the easiest place to set up a company where you know a local welder, where your friends are there to help you out at, at the weekend where you've got the ability to stay in your parents' house so you don't have any rent or uh, you don't need to pay for food for the first two years that you're, that you're working. So for our, our first year, um, the, the, the brewery in Fraserburgh, we, we made... Everything's going to be in hectolitres. Hectolitres is um, 100 litres. Um, so it's a bit confusing. But uh, first year one was, was 1,050 hectolitres. We had uh, two employees. Um, the second year, we managed to put in some more tanks. Things went pretty well. Um, but the, the goal of, of every year of, of business was to, to make a profit of, of uh, some description every year. You know, we're in business to, to, to make beer and we're in business to make money. So if we can go a year without making a penny of profit, it kind of doesn't really make sense to, to be in business. You know, we didn't have 10-year uh, plans or 20-year plans. We didn't have a massive amount of money that could fund a loss for the first five years of business. From day one, we had to, to go out there, uh, make great beer, sell great beer, and make sure we had enough money to buy the next batch of malt or the next batch of hops. So it was really important that every year we've made a, a profit. Uh, t going forward a few years, 2010, we had uh, 39 employees and we made 15,000 uh, hectolitres of beer. 2012, which was the, the last year in our Fraserburgh brewery, uh, we had 36,500 hectolitres of beer and 135 em employees. Uh, 2012 going into 2013 was a massive year of transition for us. It was going from our original facility in Fraserburgh to building a brand new brewery from scratch uh, in an industrial estate in Ellen. So it took a, a huge amount of effort during 2012 to put that together and then transition through into 2013. But then the numbers from 12 to 13, uh, 36,000 uh, in, in 2012. In 2013, 53,500 hectolitres with 224 employees. Uh, 2014 projected by the end of the year, we should hit uh, 90,000 uh, hectolitres with uh, currently 285 employees by the end of the year. It should be more like uh, 400 with the bars that we're going to be opening. Uh, monetary value, it's uh, 19 million roughly last year. 
and this year will be around 30 million turnover. Um, sales side of things, the export is, is a massive part of, of our sales. Currently we're exporting to 48 different countries, uh, which equates to 65% of the volume of beer that we're, we're making. And we feel still that there's such a massive uh, growth potential in, in overseas markets. Uh, one of our strongest markets at the moment is Scandinavia and Sweden in particular, where there seems to be a great, uh, a great love of our beer and that market's really gone from strength to strength from, from going back to 2007, I think. Uh, back end of 2007 was the first time we exported to Sweden, the first time we exported to the USA and a small amount into Italy as well. And Sweden as a market um, works a little bit different from, from most other markets. So you have the monopoly system, the system Belaget, where uh, all the alcohol in the country is, is you know, sold in, in government shops. And the great thing with that is that they put out tenders for um, drinks, beers, wines, spirits that they want to stock in their, in their stores. So if your, if your products meet that um, category, then it, it gives you a great, um, great volume, it gives you consistent ordering, and it gives you a great feeling when you know you're dealing with a Swedish government that you're going to get paid at the end of the month, which, which makes a big, big difference as well. Um, a lot of our other markets have grown really well, uh, quite organically, so somewhere like uh, Italy, for example. First, the first order they took back in late 2007, early 2008, was a, a mixed pallet of beer. Um, and then steadily from then in, until where we are today, it's gone from you know, one pallet one month to maybe one pallet every month to two pallets to a half container to a full container. And now we're sending about three to four containers a month to, to Italy. And you know, that market, again, is going from strength to strength. And I think with what, what we did as a company in, in terms of what we're doing with the beer market, we're not making the same beer as everyone else. We're making a beer that's completely different, that, that really challenges um, people's perception about what beer can be. We're not in beer to make uh, massive amounts of profit. We're, we're, in, we're in this industry to really give people an alternative. So um, that alternative is something that's made by people who are passionate about the actual product. And that goes from you know, our staff in, in Fraserburgh to our sales guys to the, the people that, that run our bars as well. And I think that point of difference is, is something that, that consumers really grasp and, and really kind of love about our company as well. The fact that, that we go out of our way to make beers that really inspire us, that interest us, hopefully translates to something that someone in Italy or someone in Japan feels the same way. So a beer that actually they look forward to coming home and drinking or, or a beer that they know is going to be released in three months and they spend two months with their name on a waiting list waiting for that beer to come out. It's a little bit different to how the beer industry works uh, traditionally. Um, in terms of uh, bars, we opened our first bar in 2010 in, in Aberdeen. I guess the same lines as why we opened the brewery, because um, we wanted somewhere to drink our beer at the weekend rather than going to the, the bar that we would usually go to. We wanted somewhere that specialised in great beer and where the bar staff in particular were massively knowledgeable about beer and took a little bit of time to explain to people who maybe didn't know so much about beer. You know, invite them in, try a sample of that. This is, you know, it could be our punk IPA made with 100% uh, malt, you know, no, no adjunct at all, no wheat, no, no ec extra sugar. The hops in it are from New Zealand, they're from America. Gives the, the beer a massive uh, fruity, hoppy, citrus, bitter, grapefruit taste. Um, and the great thing about having, having bars in particular was you would see someone in who's new to beer and then you try and maybe the, our, our lager or our, our pale ale and then six months later you go back into the bar and they're sitting there with one of our most challenging beers, so whether it's a, a big imperial stout that's aged with uh, chocolate and chili in a, in a whiskey cask for six months. But you can just see the way people actually get into understanding about beer and then they start to love and appreciate the flavours, the textures, the tastes that are in there and the time and effort that we go into, into making the beer as well. Um, 
This year, at the moment, we've got 14 bars open across the UK. We've got a bottle shop which opened uh, a few weeks ago in King's Cross and the bar in Dundee opened on, on Saturday just past as well. We also have four international bars, uh, two in Sweden, uh, one in Sao Paulo and one in Tokyo. And by the end of this year, we should have uh, 20 bars in the UK and 10 internationally. The markets are away to be opened with bars internationally is uh, Finland, Italy, Germany, France, Norway and Spain. Um, and we find that having, having the bars is really the best way of, of putting our message across to the customer. The fact that if you go into our bars, the staff actually want to work there, they actually love beer, and they actually love sharing their passion of beer with the customers, as opposed to going into a Weatherspoons or wherever else you go and you ask for a, a pint of beer. Um, if you ask about it, they don't know where it comes from or, or how it got there, it's just, that's your beer, give me the money. Um, so that's where the bars are at currently. In terms of how we've financed a lot of this, it's been pretty difficult over, over the last uh, seven years as the business has grown uh, very strongly year on year. It means that it's actually um, eaten a lot of money as the, as the business grows in terms of uh, working capital, but also in terms of new equipment investment that we had to make. So the, one of the biggest things that's helped us achieve what we have today is the equity for punks. Uh, idea, which is where we've sold shares in our company, small small shares in our company, to a, a lot of people, um, who the majority of whom are, are massive uh, beer fans. But in terms of our investment, it's been a, a pretty sound investment as well. So 2009, we, we had 1,300 people take up the share offering, and that raised about half a million pounds. In 2011 was the second time we did it, and we raised um, 2.2 million pounds with 5,500 shareholder total. Uh, the last one we did finished in, in December, Equity for Punks 3, which now means that we've got 14,208 shareholders and a total uh, amount of just over 7 million pounds that we've raised uh, through, through that scheme. And that's allowed us to build our, our new brewery in, in Ellen. It's allowed us to um, really secure and, and push on with what we're doing in the bar side of things and we've just finished building a new warehouse in, in Ellen as well. Our AGM is actually this Saturday in Aberdeen where there's around 4,000 shareholders coming up to Aberdeen for the weekend to listen to our financial report <laughs> stroke party. <laughs> the, the, the numbers last about half an hour and then the rest of it's... Uh, beer tastings, uh, having fun, and uh, listening to some bands as well. So that's, that's held in the AECC, and it's a great uh, thing for us to have, and a great thing to get people in Aberdeen for a weekend and, and spend a bit of money there while, while, while they're there. But in terms of what, what the Equity for Punks has done, it's built a community that we have that, that, that love our company. They're our biggest fans, but they're also our biggest critics as well, which is, which is really good. So we have a a forum where all our, our shareholders can log on and, and you know, leave comments, what, what they like, what they don't like, where we think we can improve, um, also their experiences in our bars. So it really helps to keep us on, on top of our game and make sure as a company we're continue, continually improving. Uh, other things that are happening, there's the, the Brewdog Show where, I guess for talking exports, James and myself have exported ourselves to uh, America. So. We have a show in America called uh, Brew Dogs, which is on the Esquire network. First season um, was last September. It was seven hour long episodes where James and myself travel around the States, visiting um, different areas and finding out about the beer community in that area, making crazy beers with some of the best brewers in that area. We then go on and, and discuss our favorite five beers in the area, our best places to drink beer in the area, um, and then beer and food pairings as well. Uh, so it's, it's a great sort of travel stroke um, informative stroke slightly weird program about uh, beer and the Esquire Network ran it for the first season. Last season it was the, the top rated show uh, on, their, on their network and it was the 10th most illegally downloaded show in the US <laughs> last year as well. Um, we've just finished filming the second season about a month ago. 
and that's 10 episodes this, this season, and it starts next, uh, next Wednesday, 25th of June. Um, and then on top of that, there's somewhere in the UK has picked it up as well, so hopefully the first season will be shown in the UK, and also uh, elsewhere around the world. So it's, it's a fantastic, um, I guess, marketing tool. The show is called Brew Dogs, so it's, it's, it's pretty good for getting our name out wherever it's shown. Uh, in terms of um, assistance that we've had over time, the, the main places we've had help from is uh, Scottish Enterprise, the FPMC and, and RSA. Um, quite a lot of, of help from them over the years, especially with building and uh, export markets as well. So um, James has dealt very heavily with them you know, over the last seven years to get us to where we are as well, especially with our export side of the business. Uh, the future, I think um, there's a lot of interesting things happening, a lot of which we can't really talk about, but um, you know, as, as the company gets bigger, we've got more and more ideas about what we want to achieve as a company. Um, the, the biggest thing for us is always continually improving our beer. A lot of people think, you know, as you go from a small brewery into a big brewery, that it's all about efficiencies and, and you know, watering beer down and making beer cheaper so you get more money at the end of it. The, the actual fact, uh, for us anyway, is that it allows us to utilize some of the best technology in the world to make beer better than we've ever made it before. So uh, it's, it's not really a case of watering down your product as, as, as you go. It's a case of being able to make beer more consistently and more flavorful than we've ever made it. And I think as long as the people in charge of the company are, are the ones that are making the decisions, and the ones that make the decisions have that love of beer, then it's only going to get better and better. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's pretty much it. I've probably gone over time. But <laughs> if you've got, uh, I think we'll have some questions in a bit. Okay, thanks. Well, what an incredible story, ladies and gentlemen. What a terrific achievement by uh, two young guys from uh, Fraserburgh. And we've now heard of the, the first shareholders AGM in the world, which will have a happy hour, or several happy hours. <laughs> Uh, and I'm sure the sales of BrewDog will increase very substantially due to the purchasing power of the audience here as well. What, what a terrific uh, uh, tale and a shining inspiration to so many young people in Scotland is to see that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we don't have a great deal of time and uh, I have to be quizzed by the Enterprise Committee in 30 minutes. Uh, so if I perhaps kick off questions, then I could leave you in the capable hands of the, of the First Minister thereafter for, for a couple of questions. Uh, there is the opportunity to ask a question or indeed make a brief point to the First Minister. Um, I should say that uh, Mark Pattinson has uh, submitted in, in advance the request to put in a question uh, and therefore I think it's only fair to ask him to put in his question and then a, a, could I perhaps ask for two other questions from the audience and we'll take them all in a one-hour and I will deal with the first one and then take my leave to reappear later. Mark. That's Mark Pattinson, not Carbon State. Um, First Minister, the most valuable rural natural asset is surely the salmon rivers. Salmon farming has led the way to tremendous exports, particularly to China now and abroad. And yet the salmon rivers are performing abysmally. Uh, some years ago, and up to date, 70% of all salmon caught in rivers by anglers are having to be returned to the river voluntarily in the hope that they might spawn. There is a law being suggested to First Minister that 100% in future will be returned to the river. Whether or not they spawn, we doubt it. At Lochcarron, on the Lochcarron River, we followed the example of a small country, Iceland, who actually farmed smelts and put the smelts in the river, avoiding all the problems of climate change and uh, predators in the river, so that the smelts, when they're put in the river, they stay one week or so, they get the scent of the river, they go off to west of Norway or Greenland, and they come back to the same spot from where uh, they 
they were released. The smoke bombing should be encouraged. Okay, thank, thank you, um, Mark. Uh, because you gave notice of the question, I can say that, uh, the, that we are conducting a review into this matter, as I think you know. Andrew Thin, the former chairman of SNH, is leading that review. He will, of course, want to engage with you fully to get your input to that. There is an issue here uh, because we know that uh, uh, salmon fishing supports a huge number of uh, jobs in Scotland and is extremely important to tourism. And on the Visit Scotland website, there is uh, specific information about where to fish uh, uh, and we want to promote that. Um, the review is to report uh, in October and therefore it will be carried out swiftly and you have certainly made the point here and to me previously that this is uh, an extremely important matter for tourism so I'm happy to, to offer that uh, response. First Minister. I mean, what's interesting about what Mark said is uh, he's putting forward a, a, a new idea, concept and innovation to try and tackle what is a, a, a problem, which is really quite exciting because a lot of this debate has been conducted in terms of tension between salmon fishing and salmon farming. Uh, and that's not really productive because both are very substantial interests and contributors to the Scottish economy, as, uh, as you acknowledged, Mark. So uh, I mean, that concept that you've uh, pioneered at Lockhart and mimicking what's been done elsewhere successfully is going to be real interesting to uh, to Andrew Finn's review. Andrew's an excellent, I launched the Andrew's review at the opening of the, the salmon season on the, the Tay this year, as, as you know, uh, and I think it gives us a real opportunity to find ways forward which don't say, right, okay, we'll shut down all salmon farming. That's a ludicrous idea. Or for that matter, salmon farming is the only interest and, and uh, can predominate over salmon fishing. That would also be a ludicrous idea. But to find ways forward, both in terms of the management and administration of salmon farming, where great improvements are being made, the management and administration of rivers and how to encapsulate all of the, the interests in the management of rivers. But new ideas uh, are very much the way forward and very relevant to, to Andrew Thin's idea. Okay, thank, thank you very much, First Minister. Um, just before I, I take my leave and I invite the First Minister perhaps to take up one more question so that you then have the opportunity to network. Could I just explain the, the next sessions, especially for those of you who haven't attended an NEF before. Uh, there, there are four sessions. Those of you with uh, white badges will attend the session hosted by Dr. Lena Wilson of Scottish Enterprise on knowledge and innovation as drivers to success. Those of you with blue badges, uh, uh, and that uh, the white badge is the back, uh, back, of this, back into this room, those of you with blue badges will attend the session hosted by Humza Yusuf, who's, the, who's here and who's the, as you know, the Minister for External Development and Inter External Affairs and International Development, and uh, blue badges to the George Suite Syndicate Room next door. Uh, those of you with red badges uh, attending the session hosted by Derek Mackay, Minister for Local Government Planning, please go to the Club Lounge QC, which is on the opposite side of the courtyard and atrium. And those of you with yellow badges um, attending the session hosted by Anne McCall, uh, Chief Executive of SDI, would go to the consort suite downstairs. And uh, the sessions will begin at 10.35 sharp. And please return here to the main Q&A session at 5 to 12, where John Swinney, who is also being grilled uh, as we speak by the Finance Committee, will be back to address uh, you and also other ministers there will then collectively answer any further questions that you may have. So please accept my apologies and uh, I will see you later. Oh, uh, Fergus, that's another totally flimsy excuse for uh, removing yourself just because you get censured by a parliamentary committee. Uh, absolutely. Walk out in abject shame, Mr Ewing. <laughs> the, uh, what, I, what I suggest we do uh, to keep up to Fergus's timetable, let's take three quick-fire questions together. I'm going to try and give uh, Martin here a, 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 a chance because there's some absolutely fascinating stuff in the presentation. Sir, say who you are. I mean, I know who you are, but tell everybody else. Hi, John McGlynn, founder of Erling Group. Um, Martin, I think that was a fascinating um, insight as to how a, a small, innovative company is leading Scotland and the world. Um, the one thing I would ask you to comment on is what advice and would you give to smaller companies who are starting up today who can benefit from some of the innovative things, particularly your funding programme, which I thought was absolute genius. Somebody spent the last two months going around 
um, pension funds around the world. I think the way you've done that is, is phenomenal, and I think we should really try and get that message out to other companies who need to get innovative funding models. So well done for that. Thanks, John. Next question, uh, again at the front, and then I'll come to this gentleman, Ford Black. Thanks, Alec. Uh, Ross Martin, SCDI. Martin, um, I'm interested in, in mindset, and particularly coming from a small town where too often it's the case our young people haven't got that international outlook. And I'm interested to see whether your entrepreneurial mindset came before the internationalised aspect or whether the international outlook developed your entrepreneurial mindset. Okay, and this gentleman four rows back just there, yeah. I've not got my glasses on, as Martin Ian Scott, 1001 Enterprising Scots. The technical term for your marketing plan was ballsy. Did you ever flinch from that and be classically Scottish and go, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this? <laughs> no. They... <laughs> Martin, do you, want, do you want to pick up these points in any order? You've got John on, uh, he's been touring the pension funds where you've been pouring the beer. You've got, you've got Ross, uh, who, who's uh, asking the, the, the question about your positioning in terms of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the industry, and Martin, who uh, is talking about your position in terms of Scottish psychology. Just take them in turn. Yeah, let's go from the last one first. In terms of uh, marketing plan, um, when we set the company up, we didn't really have a business plan or a marketing plan or any kind of plan other than we wanted to make beer. Um, you know, we, we worked out roughly what it would cost to make a batch of beer and what we'd need to sell it for, but we didn't have any one-year plan, two-year plan, five-year plan. And that kind of goes along with the, the marketing side as well. I mean, when we, when we decided eventually on, on, a, on a name or, or how we would put ourselves forward, it, I guess it was a reflection of, of James and myself at, at that time. You know, we were fairly, fairly young. We were 24 when we started the company. Um, and I guess when when Brewdog's image and, and um, prospect about what we wanted to do, we were pretty, I guess, aggressive in our in our attitude. We were very very much set, a, a, like a, a David and Goliath approach to to the beer industry. You know, we had nothing really to lose. We knew our our beers were going to be great, and we just wanted to take on you know, anyone that that, that uh, wanted to have a go at us. And I think that it worked worked reasonably reasonably well. You know, we've, we've had a, a lot of um, a lot of publicity about some of the beers we've made. Uh, at the same time in making all of those beers, we stand 100% behind the actual beer that's in, in, the, in the package. So there's no beer that we've made that we felt um, we shouldn't have, shouldn't have made. Um, in terms of some of the ones that, that grabbed some headlines or caused a bit of controversy, controversy. Um, great, you know, it gets people talking about beer, which they don't usually do. To, and then for for people like the the mainstream media to go to go mental about having a, a beer that's that's 18% alcohol, um, you know, a beer that took us about six months to make, um, that we made about 2,000 bottles of, and 60% of that's going overseas. So you're talking about very very niche, high-end products. And the fact that, that the media want to you know, have a field day about us being irresponsible producers and promoting uh, alcoholism and stuff like that is, is, is great because we get the publicity at the same time. We, you know, we can stand 100% behind the products that we're making and that there's no way that a bottle of beer for £15 is going to be bought by someone who wants to abuse alcohol. You know, it's, it's about um, really trying to challenge what people's perception of beer is. It's not just something that you drink by the pint. It's something that you can have a small bottle, share it amongst a group of friends, and you know, in, enjoy it in a civilised, uh, civilised way. About uh, your funding model compared with uh, this man's two round the pension funds. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> funding has been very difficult for us, and, and uh, you know, we looked at several ways of of getting money. Uh, as the company began to grow, I mean, we, at one point we considered, um, you know, angel and investment to, to help us out. The way the way it actually went as a company in 2008, we had um, an American imp importer, um, a company called, 
that has changed a few times, but basically it's the people who own Anchor Brewing and Distilling Company in, in, uh, in San Francisco. They were, they, they were our importer at that time, and we sold about 12% of the company to them in 2008, which gave us you know, the money we needed at that time to, to fund the growth at that stage. But from 2008 to 2009, you pretty quickly realise that that money doesn't go very far. You've spent it, you've bought more tanks, and then you're in the same position again. It's like, how do you get that next step forward without continually selling huge chunks of your company? And that was where the, the, the equity for punk thing um, really works brilliantly for us. And I guess it's kind of difficult for that that idea to work for a lot of companies. Um, you know, there's a few people have tried it, but I think the one thing we really had was a great uh, consumer engagement between ourselves and, and the people that drink our beer. So whether it was um, the video blogs that we were making for, for, you know, people knew almost personally James and myself as, as the people who made the beer and were selling the beer. And it, I think that connection between the people who are running the company and the products that they're drinking um, really helps when, when you look at something like what we did with Equity for Punks, so selling off very small shares, um, and at the same time, having something for them to get back in the short term, because it's a long-term investment. You know, to date, there's been no dividend given, and as long as we're in a, a stage of high growth, there won't be a dividend given. Um, but at the same time, they get a discount in our online shop, they get a discount in our bars, um, they get the, the invite to the AGM, which is a a more exciting AGM than normal, so we find that that model worked really well for us, but you know it may not work well for 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 other people. So in terms of of, of the question on uh, the psychology, did you ever did you and James ever think uh, were we were small, were poor, were from the broch, we better know, or did you think? Yeah. I mean, if we didn't know any better. We we we, we had uh, you know no money to lose, no family to support you kind of give it 100%. And I think it's the first, you know, first two or three years where you're, where you're working 24 hours a day, um, you know, almost seven days a week. When, you're, when you go in and filter a beer from Monday and you're still there on, on Wednesday without going home, you're sleeping you know, upstairs. It's just that massive undying belief in, in what you're doing. Um, and I guess coming from a small uh, rural uh, part of Scotland, you know, the general consensus in a lot of those small places that people don't like to see other people doing well. So, you know, you can, you can get quite often, um, as well as a lot of support, a little bit of people who, who don't want to support you, who want to try and put little barriers in your way to, to, to stop you succeeding. Um, so I think definitely the, the determination is, is the one thing that, that made sure that we got past all the people and things that tried to, to stop us uh, achieving what we wanted to achieve. Right, I'm going to take three quick-fire questions from this side of the, uh, the room, uh, and then uh, we'll call it as uh, that, Martin. Yep. Uh, good morning. Good morning, uh, Martin. Martin McAdam from Macamarine Power. Just wanted to ask you the question. You said you had £20,000, and you were able to get £30,000 from the bank. You, know, what was the, you said you had no business plan, but why did the bank give you that money? What was behind being able to leverage that cash? It's a, a question which is leading, I think, Martin. But uh, next, uh, next, uh, next two, please. Anything else going? Oh, right at the back, right at the back row. If you like Buddy Business Gateway, Martin, have you brought any samples? <laughs> Why aren't you a crowd shareholder? <laughs> this lady here at the front. Hi there, Martin. Louise McDonald from Young Scott. Um, I think it's just a fantastically inspiring story and would love you guys to be telling more young people your story. Um, so any ideas that you have about how more young people can hear about it would be great. Okay. Martin, do you want to add? Yeah, sure. In, in terms of the initial investment, I mean, um, we, had, we had some money there, and I think the, the first loan that we got was actually secured against, uh, um, I think it was some of James's father's um, shares or whatever he had in a fishing company. So it was basically a little bit of leverage from that, plus... Uh, Plus, it was probably an Excel spreadsheet that James would have had to do the night before, which had uh, our, our uh, projections uh, on it. Have you tried that one? Because you're no, you're no mean hand at raising finance yourself, are you? 
You tried Dex? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> samples. Did you bring along any samples? Uh, the best place to get samples is our bar in the, in the, in the Cowgate. <laughs> yeah, you heard it. And the story for, for Young Scots from Louise, the, from the Young Scot Network. Um, yeah, I mean, James and myself are, are, are pretty busy, but we've got a few people now um, who can come and help and, and tell the story. Um, but both myself and James would be keen on doing a, you know, a, few, a few events per year just to, to let people know what we've done to, to date. And all I'd add, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, Martin uh, let the mainstream media off quite late uh, because they obviously relished uh, the battle. But the same mainstream media, of course, were opposing minimum pricing in alcohol, uh, which uh, uh, Martin and James were advocates and supporters of. Partly because, of course, their stuff's no touched by minimum pricing, but nonetheless... <laughs> <laughs> But nonetheless, it's an interesting contrast uh, in people's consistency of views uh, uh, across these matters. Uh, listen, that, that's been a, enlivening. Good luck for the rest of the day. It's going to be a, a great programme. But can we give our best wishes to James and our great thanks to Martin. <laughs>